Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, oh my, we're so glad that you're with us. This really is a safe place to learn how to read and understand the scriptures. And if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have an ESV, the version that we use, you can pull out your mobile device and just punch in Ephesians 1 ESV. And you can follow along there. And I think even if you misspell Ephesians, uh, I'm not going to spell it out for you, but autocorrect will help you along the way. So Ephesians 1 ESV, follow along on your phone if you need it. And we are in week two of our four-week sermon series highlighting our new statement of faith. Hopefully, again, you grabbed a copy on the way in. If not, you can feel free to make your way over to the table by the entrance and grab one. As you get familiar with this statement, I your pastors are assuming that there's a question you're going to begin asking yourself that we should discuss the answer to ahead of time, okay? What happens? What happens if, what happens if I disagree with something in the statement of faith? What happens if you disagree with something in the statement of faith? And listen, this is a live issue, okay? This is a live issue. In fact, today might be your lucky day. The topic that I'm about to preach on may very well be the part of the statement of faith that you disagree with. And more on that in just a moment. But what happens, what happens, don't storm out of the garden, okay? Hang on till the end. No. What happens if you don't see eye to eye with something in this statement? Now, now the answer has all kinds of nuances, answer has all kinds of nuances, but, but I just want you to hear from the pastoral team right up front that if you disagree with something in this statement of faith, we want to begin by saying there's, there's room for you here. Okay, there's room for you here. We don't expect every attendee or, or even actually every member to agree with every single line of this statement. In fact, <clears throat> we position ourselves here to make disciples, which means we want to help people grow in their knowledge of God and his word. And so if if you come across parts of this statement of faith that you disagree with, you're unsure about, sentences that rub you the wrong way, you have an open invite from the pastoral team. Myself, Eric, Mike, you have an open invitation to come share those questions and concerns with us. We promise that we'll listen to you. We promise that we'll show you in the scriptures where we're getting this from. We don't think there's anything in here that doesn't have good warrant from the scriptures. We'll show you. Uh, from the scriptures where we get that, and we'll give you time to process and think and pray. There's no rush, okay? There's, there's room for you here if you bump into parts of the statement of faith that you disagree with, okay? Good. Well, that brings me to our topic for today. The namesake of our church, sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Listen, any marketing professional, uh, professional would tell us that we're basically insane, for naming our church something that most people can't pronounce or spell. And to be fair, we never claim to be marketing geniuses, so we're not really very offended. Sovereign Grace. Why would we name our church Sovereign Grace? Maybe it's a more familiar name, if Sovereign Grace doesn't ring a bell for you, the Doctrine of Election. Doctrine of Election. Now listen, Sovereign Grace, and this is why we named ourselves this, means more than election, okay? One of the founders of our denomination, in fact, C.J. Mahaney, here's what he writes. He, he wrote, Sovereign Grace encompasses far more than election. It speaks of all God's gracious attributes and acts as they relate to all of life, for all things are under the sovereign, gracious, attentive care of God. That's why we don't shy away from the name Sovereign Grace. God is sovereignly pouring out grace all the time. It's who he is. 
Now, what kind of church wouldn't want to be named after a God like that? But, but today, we're going to zero in on the doctrine of election, that God chooses whom he will save. And it would be pastoral malpractice to speak much longer without reading from God's word. So let's look there together now. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Follow along as I read, and then I will pray. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. These are the very words of God addressed to us this morning. Let's pray that he would help us understand and apply them this morning. Lord, while we're grateful for this entire book, give special attention to these four verses this morning, and thank you that they are in our Bibles. There's much for us here, even in these brief words, so much truth that you have recorded for us, that you intend to use to do good to our souls. And so I pray that by the power of your Spirit, my words would be helpful for these people to understand your word. So help me to serve my friends skillfully and effectively. Help me to be faithful to you and to bring you glory. And help us all to understand and treasure and cherish the realities that are contained herein, glorious realities. Help us understand them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are basically three things Bible readers do when they bump into passages that speak of God choosing some people or referring to his people as the elect or passages like this one that describe predestination. The first thing we do is attempt to explain them in such a way that they lose their obvious meaning. And by the end, everyone's got an equal shot at salvation, and it's on you to choose what you'll do. That's one thing we do. The second option is to get overzealous about the doctrine of election and make everything about it. And belittle people who don't see it the same way that you do. Perhaps you've, you've heard the term cage stage Calvinist. Someone who's overzealous about the doctrine of election. The third option when you read passages like this, and I think this is the most common one, is to accept that the Bible speaks this way, but to remain unsure of what exactly it means 
and what effect it should have on your life. Basically, to functionally ignore the doctrine of election. Now that, I will confess, was my approach at the beginning of my Christian life. I kept reading these passages, and because of how confusing and disputed the meaning of them was, I just basically steered clear of them. But, but the Bible got to me after a while because I had to keep reading them and I had to keep making sense of them. The Bible speaks in these terms over and over and over again. I mean, I thought of even just giving you a sampling. The list of passages I could take you to is so long that I didn't even know where to begin and didn't want to bog you down. I mean, even in the Old Testament, there's one chosen nation in the middle of a bunch of apparently unchosen nations. And that theme just continues throughout the Bible. So I have to make sense of this. We need to make sense of these words. We need to make clear statements about what the Bible means when it uses this kind of language. So here's what our statement of faith says. If you open to page 16, if you have your copy, you can look with me at the first sentence under the heading, God's grace in election. Here's what we've written in our statement of faith. God, in his great love, before the foundation of the world, chose those whom he would save in Christ Jesus. God, in his great love, before the foundation of the world, chose those whom he would save in Christ Jesus. Now, I hope it's clear that sentence was drawn right from Ephesians chapter 1. This is not meant to be a novelty here. This is just Ephesians 1. Now, there's so much I wish to say to unpack that sentence, and I know, okay, I know that you already have questions, okay? And I have to ask you now, because I can't answer all of them up front, to track with me, stay with me, and I'm going to do my best throughout the sermon to get to these various questions that come up as we think about the doctrine of election. So stick with me. We're going to dig right in. I have four statements I want to make. Four statements. I'll give them to you as we go. I'm going to show you how I got these from both the passage from Ephesians 1 and from our statement of faith. You'll see both as we move. All right. Statement number one for you note takers. Point number one. Election is the reason there are any Christians. Election is the reason there are any Christians. Verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1 is one long sentence in the original Greek. One long sentence. It's broken up here in English for our benefit, but one long sentence in the original Greek. And how does it begin? Blessed be. It's a call to worship. This is worship. What is, what is Paul celebrating about God? Second half of verse 3 into verse 4. Look there. Second half of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God has given to his people an innumerable amount of spiritual blessings that are heavenly in nature. And where did this great gift giving begin? back before the world was made. For God chose us in Christ before the foundation 
of the world. And he predestined us to adoption, as verse 5 says. Election is the first step of salvation. Before God created this world, before humans sinned and spoiled everything in it, before all that happened, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, decided that he would create us, and then after we turned down the path of destruction, he would save some of us. Our statement of faith describes this decision. Look, look again, page 16. You can just keep your finger there because I'm going to keep having you open back up to it. It's in the middle of the paragraph. His decision to set his saving love on the elect is based entirely on his sovereign will and good pleasure. That decision happened before time began. And that language, that sentence is drawn also from Ephesians 1. You saw the phrase second half of verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. God decided to create us. Nobody forced him to. He knew we would fall, but he had already decided that he would save some of us. Nobody forced him to. I mean, think about this. God was free not to save anybody. And who would have faulted him? Who could have faulted him if he had saved nobody? Nobody could have faulted him. He was free in that regard. So without God choosing to save some, there wouldn't be any Christians. The decision to make anyone into a Christian was made before the universe existed. Now let me tell you how I made peace with this. Okay, because again, I know the wheels are turning in your head. I know this creates questions for you. Let me just give you a, a personal testimony. Let me tell you how I made peace with this. It took some time, okay? So if you're wrestling with this, I have a lot of compassion for you, patience for you. But here's what happened. I began to ask myself, why am I a Christian and other people aren't? Why, why am I a Christian? Is it because I'm smarter than unbelievers? It's not that. Anyone who knows me knows it's not that. Is it because I'm more spiritual? Nope. Is it because I'm more moral? No, I know lots of unbelievers I think who are still more moral than I am. More upright, better dads, better husbands, better employees. Can't be that. Is it because I have access to information they don't have? It can't be. I mean, I, I grew up going to church and going to Christian school and hearing the hearing the gospel over and over again, yet I had plenty of peers that didn't walk with the Lord. They heard the same things I heard, but it didn't have the same effect. And so, after continuing to read this book and think about my experience, I just finally clicked one day, credit to the Lord, I'm a Christian because God chose to make me one. There's just no other plausible explanation based on how well I know myself. There's just no other plausible explanation. Now, I would imagine if you're a Christian, you've had similar thoughts. You, at some point, you've got to ask, why me? Why me? How did I get in on this? Why did I take an interest when others don't? The answer from Scripture is because God chose you. It's a circular answer. Why? He loves you because he loved you. It's a 
glorious kind of circular reasoning. I've been helped very much by a famous quote from Charles Spurgeon on this point, thinking about my own salvation. Here's what he wrote. I believe the doctrine of election, he writes, because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. The doctrine of election is the only plausible explanation for the existence of Christians. Statement number two. Election makes salvation all by grace. Election makes salvation all by grace. We love purpose statements, mission statements, right? And if Ephesians 1 has a bunch of them in it, a bunch of purpose statements, uh, one in particular. After you read the lofty phrases of verses 3 through 5 about blessings in the heavenly places and what God was doing before he created the world and all these other things, we come to this purpose statement in verse 6. To the praise <coughs> of his glorious grace. There's the purpose statement. Why is God doing all this? Why is he doing all this? Why is he picking people? Why is he saving them? Why is he blessing them? To the praise of his glorious grace. Why has he chosen to save some? God has chosen to save some because he wants to put on display this wonderful aspect of his character, his eternal character. He has always been this way. God loves to give people what they don't deserve. He just loves to do that. He is delighted to do that. It is his will to give people what they don't deserve. And that makes him glorious to behold. It isn't just that he's powerful. It isn't just that he's sovereign. It isn't just that he's omniscient and knows everything or omnipresent, can be anywhere. What's amazing about God is that he bends all of those attributes to show kindness to sinners who don't deserve it. To the praise of his glorious grace and we worship him in response because he loves sinners he forgives sinners he bears with sinners he gives sinners the more blessings than they could ever earn salvation of course being the crowning jewel rescue from sin and death that we brought on ourselves but listen if you or i contribute anything of significance to that then we take some of that praise that belongs to him alone This is why the doctrine of election is important. We don't want to rob God of any of the glory that he alone deserves. So we can't say we contributed anything of significance to our salvation. I think we say this very well in our statement of faith. Back again, page 16. Second sentence under that heading, God's grace and election. Here's what we say. God's election is entirely gracious 
and not at all conditioned upon foreseen faith, obedience, perseverance, or any merit in those whom God has chosen. There are things we do that do appear on the surface to contribute to salvation. We exercise faith. We follow Jesus. We fight sin. Generous with our money. Come to church. Those don't contribute to salvation. They're all downstream from election, right? Those come after God chooses you, not before. In fact, it's easy to argue. We do those very things because God chose us and set his love upon us. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we weren't asking, he opened our eyes to see Christ clearly and then gave us these gifts of repentance and faith and sustaining grace. If we contribute anything to our salvation besides the sin from which we need to be saved, then we have something to pat ourselves on the back about. Some reason that we're better or smarter or more insightful than people who don't. Something to congratulate ourselves for. But if we contributed nothing to our salvation, and the only reason we're Christians and other people aren't is because God chose us, we can't feel superior to them. The doctrine of election has an incredible power to humble us. I mean, who can look down on someone else when God has treated them like that? We can't look down on unbelievers. We can only weep and pray and plead with them. The doctrine of election doesn't humble us, then we're missing something. This is where if I went back to cage stage Calvinists, they're missing something. <laughs> should make you very humble. should floor us. In fact, the only proper response is to fall on our knees and thank God, which is precisely what Paul's trying to get us to do in Ephesians 1. We didn't do anything to contribute to our salvation. We didn't help our salvation along. God did it all. And therefore, he gets all the glory. And then we get all the joy in giving him that glory. <laughs> he saved us to the praise of his glorious grace. Statement number three. Election leaves us with unanswered questions. Election leaves us with unanswered questions. When Paul writes in verse 4 that God chose us, he's referring the us is to the church, which means naturally there are people God didn't choose, namely those outside the church. And as I mentioned earlier, since the beginning of the world, God has always had a chosen people. We got to see this. We were treated to this as we worked through the book of Genesis. Everyone else is the world, or as the Old Testament commonly referred to them, the nations. There was the nation of Israel and the nations. When Paul writes uh, in verse 5 that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, he's inferring that there are people who are not God's children, right? I mean, if every person on the planet is a child of God, what does this mean? We can't say every person on the planet is a child of God in the sense that Paul means it here. Only some are adopted. 
And so God's chosen people live among people who were not chosen. Here's how we describe this. Statement of faith again, page 16. Last sentence in the first paragraph, that first paragraph we've been looking at there. In the mystery of his will, it begins. God passes over the non-elect, withholding his mercy and punishing them for their sins as a display of his holy justice and wrath. Now, this gets us to a number of questions. So there are some people who can't be saved. So God doesn't give everyone a fair chance. So God's offer for anyone to come to him, and there are many of those offers in the Bible, isn't a genuine offer. Now, when faced with these kinds of questions, there's one theologian, Mark Webb, he had a very helpful response. So instead of making you listen to me, I'm going to have you listen to him. Let me read to you what he said to people that were asking these kinds of questions. He paints a picture. He writes, You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven, and men are thronging to get in the door, and God is saying to various ones, Yes, you may come, but not you or you, or you. The situation is hardly this, he writes. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. That's God's posture towards the world. He's inviting all to come. Yet, all men and women and children, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over here and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. And he writes this, election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there. But it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place, empty of humans, and hell would be bursting at the seams. He finishes, if you perish in hell, blame yourself, as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God, for that is entirely his work. To him alone belong all praise and glory for salvation is all in grace from start to finish. Now that, that is the picture the Bible paints. That's the picture the Bible paints. I mean, if I could just give you one uh, famous verse. Listen to what the Apostle John writes in John 3.18. Right, two verses after the famous John 3.16. He says, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This is it. Everyone's running. Everyone's running towards the cliffside. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God doesn't choose to condemn people in the same way he chooses to save them. Okay, there's an asymmetry about how this works here. If you're a real apt theologian, you might be thinking of things like double predestination and stuff like that. That's what I'm talking about. God doesn't choose to condemn people in the same way he chooses to save them. Sinners are already condemned. That's the state that they're in. 
We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are in big trouble. We're all running towards the edge of a cliff. But God is snatching some of us by the back of the collar before we run off. He chooses to save some. He passes by others. Active saving. Passive passing over. God isn't turning away people who want to be saved. But he is choosing not to save some. And this, of course, leaves us with big questions. Why doesn't he snatch everyone by the collar before they run off the cliff? Why does he let some perish? We get a little bit of that from our statement of faith, where it says as a display of his justice and wrath. But really, we can't answer it sufficiently other than saying things like it just wasn't his will to save everybody. That's why that sentence we read from the statement of faith begins with in the mystery of his will. There are some unsolved mysteries here, some unanswered questions. His plan was to save some, but not all, and only he knows why. And he hasn't chosen to share that with us. quote C.J. Mahaney again, one of the founders of our denomination, quoted earlier. He, he wrote the following about this. He said, it's good to acknowledge, good to acknowledge that just as we cannot fully understand God, so we cannot fully understand doctrines about God and his ways. Mystery remains. Indeed, God has announced the following non-negotiable arrangement in Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord. And the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So here's what we know. Here's what we know. Here's the things revealed. We all deserve hell. Some of us get it. Some of us don't. And only God knows why he chooses whom he chooses and why he passes over whom he passes over. So look, is God's offer to all mankind a genuine offer to be saved? Absolutely. Again, the problem is that none of us are willing to accept his offer unless he first changes our hearts and minds. And why does he let some perish? That's a secret thing that belongs to the Lord. We have to leave it in his hands. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm guessing this makes your head spin a little bit. Here's what we would want you to hear. God is making an offer to you. I suspect it's why he's arranged for you to be here this morning and to hear about this offer. The offer is genuine. Listen, turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ and you too will be saved. That is the most important decision you could make. And listen, if you take him up on that offer today, which we hope, oh my gosh, we hope and pray and preach so that you would, then one day you're going to look back on this moment like all of us have and we'll say, Lord, I didn't choose you, but you chose me. And that is certainly our hope. Now, I know there are more questions. Oh, election leaves us with unanswered questions. What about babies who die before they're born or die in infancy? 
What about people with severe mental problems who can't seem to grasp the truths of the gospel? What about people who die with no access to the gospel? Did God choose them? Oh my gosh, the list of questions could go on and on. And on that point, we can't answer for any individual. Here's what we know, right? Secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us. We know God is gracious and merciful. We know that he will do what is right. And we know that one day we'll understand. And we just have to be content with that for now. The secret things belong to the Lord. Statement number four. Election produces good fruit in our lives. Election produces good fruit in our lives. Look back with me again at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and then pay close attention to this next phrase, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us to what end? Holiness and blamelessness. Now look, I don't know about you, but if that's what he chose me for, I don't think I'm fulfilling my purpose. <laughs> that's only a surface reading of those words, though. Here's what, we, here's what Paul means. Blamelessness doesn't mean we've done nothing wrong. It means we have a clear conscience before God. That's what blamelessness is. Clear conscience before God. We know that our sins have been dealt with through the work of Christ on the cross. We know that. We believe it. We're now seeking to live in light of it. That's what it means to be blameless, to have a clear conscience. And then holiness. Holiness has two dimensions. The first is positional holiness. God considers us holy because he clothes us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the second, which is probably really what he's angling at here, practical holiness. We are distinct from the world. We're not perfect, but distinct from the world, distinctly Christian lives. We look different than our neighbors. We look like God's people, and that makes us look different than everybody else. That's what it means to be holy. So what Paul means here is that God chose us not merely to spare us from judgment, though that is wonderful. <laughs> not merely to spare us from judgment, but also to produce real fruit through our lives that brings him glory. And listen, if we believe and understand and cherish the biblical doctrine of election, it produces certain kinds of fruit in our lives. And this brings me to something I love about our statement of faith, actually. I love that our statement of faith doesn't just state the doctrine of election. It tells us what kind of healthy fruit this healthy doctrine will produce. So look with me again. Page 17, this time. You get to look at the next page. No longer on page 16. The one full sentence on there that begins, Although. Although attended with mystery, the doctrine of election should not produce speculation, introspection, apathy, or pride, but here's what it should produce. Rather, humility, gratitude, assurance, if you can believe it, evangelistic passion, get to that in a minute, and eternal praise for the undeserved grace of God in Christ. That is such a rich sentence. When we get, when we get it, get that we were chosen by God, not because of anything we did, that transforms us. 
we're humble then because we didn't do anything to deserve the great salvation that God has shown us. In fact, he had to do it all because we wouldn't do anything. We couldn't do it. We wouldn't do it. How humbling, right? We can't feel superior to others. We're not smarter. We're not more moral. We'd be in the same place as every other person on the planet had God not intervened. So I'm humble. I don't think I'm a great dude. In fact, I know I'm not. Election reinforces that in a very helpful way. We're humble. We're grateful. That's the next thing in the statement of faith. We're grateful because he did something for us that we weren't asking him to do, and he wasn't obligated to do, but that we desperately needed him to do. Something only he could do. And he did it simply because he loved us, and simply because he wanted to put the glory of his grace on display. And he has. And we're the beneficiaries. And so we're grateful. The doctrine of election produces assurance. Assurance. This is an important word. Not something we get to address terribly often. Do you ever struggle to believe that you're really saved and that you're really actually going to make it to heaven? that you're really going to be there on that last day and be in God's good graces? Do you struggle to believe that? If so, then it's biblically prescribed. Take an extra strength dose of the doctrine of election. Okay? That's what you should do with your concerns of assurance. Take an extra strength dose of the doctrine of election. If you believe in the real Jesus at all, even if your faith seems small, then that's proof that he has chosen you and will keep you to the end. Our statement of faith cares so much about this, we care so much about this, that we even wrote a sentence in the middle of the paragraph on page 16 that addresses assurance. Here's what it says. The number of God's elect is fixed for eternity. And no one who has been chosen by God will be lost. Those are the words you need to hear if you struggle with assurance. No one who has been chosen by God will be lost. This comes straight from Jesus in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, he said, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. no rush. Listen, if you believe in Jesus, even if your faith is small, you will never perish. If he chose you, he will keep you to the end. Now, the doctrine of election produces evangelistic passion. Okay, I know you've been wondering this the whole time. Why on earth would we bother evangelizing if God has already chosen whom he's gonna save? Well, the first reason is that he instructs us to. <laughs> and he's given us new hearts that now desire to obey him and please him. And the, as Charles Spurgeon said, the, the machine of salvation is filled with Christians preaching the gospel to non-Christians. That's how they get saved. That's how God does it. So the first reason we should do evangelism is simply because God instructs us to. But secondly, 
Knowing that God has chosen people who will be saved means that our evangelism will succeed. Okay? If God hasn't chosen anyone, that means there's no guarantee that anybody will be saved. Which could make our evangelism efforts feel rather futile. But if we know that God is saving people and know that he has people in this city who will come to him, we have a guarantee that our evangelism is going to work. So the doctrine of election actually makes us confident that our efforts to share the gospel will succeed because we don't know who God's chosen. There's no mark on them or something like that. We have no clue. And God's invitation is to everybody. So we offer that invitation to everybody. We share the gospel liberally and freely with all. God uses it to draw those whom he's saving. Our job is to share it. His job is to draw. Now the last thing our statement of faith notes that this doctrine produces is eternal praise for the undeserved grace of God in Christ. Eternal praise. Praise that starts now and goes on forever. This brings us right back to Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us and predestined us to adoption, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Here's what J.I. Packer writes about Paul's words here. When Paul introduces election into his teaching, it is for one end only, to help Christians see how great is the grace that has saved them and to move them to a worthy response in worship and life. The doctrine of election, rightly understood and rightly applied, results in praise and devotion. God set his saving love on us before we were born. He patiently waited for us while we sinned, rebelled, and ran away from him. He sent his son to atone for our sins. He sent his spirit to give us new hearts that would trust and treasure Christ. And he chose to do all of this before the foundation of the world. If those things are true... How can we not live for him? How can we not now sing to him? Which is precisely what we're going to do. Let's pray and then respond with a song of joy and thanksgiving. Lord, thank you that salvation truly is all by grace. We confess that we've contributed nothing to it except our sin. And that for the praise of your glorious grace, you put our sins upon your only perfect son and punished him in our place and received us with joy. And you planned to do this the whole time. Thank you. Thank you for planning our salvation and accomplishing our salvation. And, and I do ask that it would generate in our hearts a real gratitude that results in real worship and total life devotion to the God who has been so unbelievably good and gracious to us. All that you have done is by grace alone for the praise of your glorious grace. And so we thank you now. We worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.